me go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13 this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we come, as you tell us to, and we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. It's only through our humiliation to your divine power that can lead us to any level of sanctification. So we ask that we would humble ourselves. And that your mighty word would be spoken over us and then in us and then eventually through us to this lost world. And God, I pray that today you'd get all the honor, all the glory as you prepare our hearts for what you have for us uh, for this morning as well as when we take this vote here at the end for the future of this church. So lead us, guide us, We call upon you to do what only you can do, and that's to make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray this in the famous name of him and him alone, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all of God's people said, amen. We're here in James, the little letter James wrote uh, to the 12 tribes, to to the 12 uh, Jewish tribes that have been dispersed all over the known world. And what James is doing in this letter is calling them back to their original faith, that some had wandered from the faith, some had become discouraged in their faith, and some had become distracted in their faith. And and James is going to say to them over and over about their faith and their call to have a godly faith. We looked at, he starts the small letter off right out of the gates with about testing our faith with trials and persecution. Even while we've been in this letter ourselves, we faced trials and persecution and yet if we're honest we can see how God's hand has been faithful and kind to us and if we look at our own lives we could say that God used these trials and is using these trials that we currently go through to perfect our faith and then last week we looked at this idea of partiality right that that all of us if we're honest can often slide into being partial or having discriminatory uh, acts in our our hearts, and sometimes that can even come into our actions. And James addresses that. He says this in in five ways we looked at last week. We'll look at two more this morning. Those five ways, uh, really three ways with two sub-points. So I'll give the three main points, and then I'll give the two this morning that we'll look at. Remember last week we looked at that, that partiality, goes against the character of God. That the character of God and all his characteristics, love, kindness, generosity, uh, love, uh, forgiveness, there is a character of God that is impartial. Uh, Just look at the world around us and those that are believers, God doesn't choose you or choose me or gave his son for this set of people and not this set of people. God gave himself through his son for all people. And so, God himself is not partial. Therefore, we are to be like God and show no partiality. Remember, then we said that partiality goes against the sovereignty of God or the rule of God. That even in God's character, he then rules without being partial. So he doesn't look upon us and his ruling on us with partiality. It's equal to all because his character is equal to all. And then... We said it goes against God's economy. And today we're going to look at two more things. God shows us that partiality 
goes against his law. So his care goes against his character, it goes against his sovereignty, it goes against his economy, and it goes against his law. And then lastly, we'll look at partiality goes against God's mercy. So let's dive in this morning and look at how partiality goes against the law of God, God's law. This is what James says. He says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you've committed sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So what is and what does James mean by the royal law? The royal law means this. This report refers to the king's law. When there was a royal law that was stamped in Jewish history, it was as if it was the king himself gave that decree. If you look throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the kings would give royal laws. And so you had to live by those royal laws. But who is James speaking of as the royal king? He's referring back to Jesus. So we can see right out of the gates that James is saying there is this royal law. And later on in the text, he's going to say one of the royal laws is against partiality. And so what is this royal law? There's many laws in the Old Testament. Some believe there's 613 or 614 royal laws that when God spoke to Moses, in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, he gave 613 or 614 royal laws that came from God himself. And what God was saying to Moses, to the people of Moses, if you want to live in my kingdom, this is, these are the laws that you have to live by in order to live in my kingdom. If you don't live by these laws, what happens to you? Consequences. Some of it, you're, you're kicked out of the kingdom. Others, you're mur you're, you're killed because you didn't keep the royal law. All because God knows how we are ought to live. And there is the best way that we are to live. And so God's law is for our goodness, how we are to live out in this kingdom. But Jesus is the ultimate royal law. Jesus said himself, I've come to fulfill the law. So all 16, 613 laws are 614 laws, how you deter, determine the Old Testament. Jesus himself said this, I've come to, to fulfill all those laws. So all the fulfillment of the law, I am the ultimate royal law. And this is what I say. We see what he says and how we are to live out in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you turn with me, just for a moment, to Matthew chapter 22, you know this passage well. But this is what Jesus says one afternoon when he is questioned by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ultimate law keepers. They would take all of God's laws in the Old Testament, live by them, and actually add to those laws to live according to them. Now their actions were right, but their hearts were wrong. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're trying to pin Jesus into a corner because Jesus has been saying, I am the law. I am God in essence. And it really irritated the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then this is what he says to them when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him. This is in verse 
or 34 of chapter 22 of Matthew. You know this well. It says, but the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. The Pharisees heard that Christ, Jesus, had really stopped the Sadducees in their tracks. And they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Here's the Sadducees and the Pharisees to question Jesus. They said to him, teacher, verse 36, which is the greatest commandment in all of the law. If you are the law and there's 613 laws, which is the most important of all those laws? And Jesus, being Jesus, trumps them with his answer. And look what he says to them. Verse 37, he said to him, the teacher that's trying to question Jesus, to trap Jesus, he says, here's the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. The greatest law is that you are to love God. So the royal law that James is talking about is that we ought to love God with all that we have. And then Jesus and James are going to pick up on this next part that you will find in Leviticus 19.18. He said that's the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it or the second is equal to it. What he's saying is there's not just one law, there's two, but those two laws make one law. So the first half of that law is to love God with all that you have. The second half of that law is just as great as that first half of the law. What's the second half of the law? He says, the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law of the prophets. Now let's turn back to James because James is going to pick up on that. James says the royal law, you know the royal law. He's talking to the Jewish people. The the royal law is that you love God and you love other people as you love yourself. The love of yourself is simply this, that God knows that we love ourselves. Is that not accurate? Am I the only one in the room? I, I mean, I love myself. That sounds horrible, but it's true. And so what James and Jesus are saying, hey, when you love yourself, you've got to love God and other people the same way. Be selfish in your love for those two places. And now he's going to tie it to partiality. He says, this is according to the scripture. This isn't according to me. This is according to God's holy word. You are to love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. So he says, the first is this, that you are to, the royal law is that you love your neighbor. Now remember what happened in Luke chapter 10. Turn there for just a moment. Many of us can say this this morning, the same way that in Luke chapter 10, the lawyer stood up to test Jesus again. Remember, the, the Pharisees can, began to always test Jesus, and so now the test is this. So you're to love God as you love yourself, and you're to love neighbors the same way. And so what's the, now the, the, the lawyer say to Jesus? Well, who's my neighbor? And so for us this morning, the question is, who's our neighbor? 
Because James is not talking about your, just your neighbor across the street. So who is our neighbor? If we're to love God with all that we have, and we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, then we've got to ask the question, who's our neighbor? Because if we're going to fulfill the law of Christ, we have to love our neighbor. Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10. I'll read the entire passage this morning. He stands up. He says, you're to love God. This is verse 27. You are to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this is 29, but he desired to justify himself to Jesus. And who is my neighbor? Verse 30. It's the, the crux of the text. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, a godly man, was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. He did not see him as his neighbor. He saw him as a burden. He saw him as one that was in the way, and so he passed by with doing nothing. So likewise, a Levite, another priest, when he came to that place, he saw and passed by the same way as the first man. But then it says this in verse 33, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan would have hated Jews. They would have despised him of all the people that would have passed by the other side. It would have been him. Th those two were so in racial tension and conflict that they would have nothing to do with one another. But look what it says. But the Samaritan one. The one that ought to hate the man that's in the ditch. Unlike the two priests who ought to love the man that's in the ditch. The one that ought to hate him does something. The Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him he what? He had compassion on him. He was moved with desire to do something. My first question to you and to me this morning do we see people and are we moved with desire to do something about what we see? He went to him and bound him up in all of his wounds, pouring oil and wine onto him. He took care of his wounds. He bandaged him up. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took what? Care of him. Circle those four words in your Bible. The next day he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And that lawyer that day said this to Jesus. The one who showed him mercy. Circle that word mercy in your Bible because James is going to pick up on that at the end of this text. Who is the one that showed mercy to the man in the ditch, the Samaritan? How did he do that? How did this man show mercy to the man in the ditch? He was moved with compassion to the one that was needy. My question to us, my answer to us is this, who is our neighbor? God's word makes it clear who our neighbor is. Those that are in great need. 
And people's neediness ought to move us with compassion to care for them. Now remember, he's tying it back to the royal law. What is the royal law? That we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Who's the ultimate example of loving God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving other people the way he loved himself? Jesus. And what did Jesus do for us when he looked on us and our neediness? Are we not needy people? And Jesus had compassion for us and was moved with his compassion because he looked on us and he saw our greatest need. What was our greatest need? To have relationships so that we could in turn love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So Jesus moved with compassion toward you and I to meet our need that we could not meet ourselves. And so my question now is to us as a church. Do we show partiality of how we meet other people's needs? You know, later on in the letter, James is going to say this. If all that we say to people is we see a need and say, man, I hope you get warmed and we're not moved to help them get warm, then we have no faith at all. James is all about seeing and responding to what's going on in our heart. And how often are we in our hearts see things without a response based on what? Partiality. And so James is addressing that here in the text. Remember, church, that showing partiality before it does anything else, it goes against the character of God, it goes against the sovereignty of God, it goes against the economy of God, but it's not just that. It goes against the law of God, which if it's against the law of God, what does that make it? James tells us it therefore is a sin. So partiality is not just a preference, but it's a sin that we must deal with, not just externally, but in our hearts. So who do we see as needy and are we being moved with compassion to meet the needy? Because if we see it and we're not moved, then we're showing partiality. And that is a sin. And now James is going to go on in the rest of this part of the passage to say this. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing a sin and convicted by the law as a transgressor. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. For he who said, I do not, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you commit adultery, but you do not murder, you are a transgressor of the whole law. What he's now going to say is this, how often does our pride get in the way? What, what does James mean by that? Many of us can sit in the room and, and say this, I haven't shown partiality. But if we're honest with ourselves, we've transgressed the law in other ways. And what James is saying, if you've transgressed one part of the law, you've transgressed the whole part of the law. All of us in the room are guilty of partiality because even if we've never shown partiality, we've broken other parts of the law. Therefore, all of the law, we're 
now under the judgment of what? The law. Think of it in these two ways. Just over a year ago in February, I got a brand new car. I mean, it's awesome. I'm not going to lie. Four runner. Drove it off the lot. Drove it all from Cool Springs to here. I mean, I thought I was amazing. People looking at me, I was like, man, yes, I've arrived. I had 26 miles on the car. I didn't drive it for the weekend just because I didn't need to. Monday morning, I woke up and needed to go back to Cool Springs to go to work. Now, I made it from here to 840, which is about five miles at best. Get on to 840, and unbeknownst to me, there's a truck in front of me. That truck was full of rocks. And guess what happened? Because they don't know how to fix 840. You hit one bump, and where's all the rocks go? Out the window, or out the back, and where does it go? Right onto my brand new windshield. And you know the sound that it makes. Right, there's those rocks that hit the window, windshield, you're like, ah, that, that probably didn't do any damage. Where those those rocks that hit, you're like, yep, that just broke it. I drove, I heard the sound, I was like, oh, man. And I looked, and there's just like these three cracks in the windshield. I had 27 miles on the brand new car. Now, here's what happened. When I took it to the dealership to fix the window, what did they do? They didn't fix just the crack in the window. They had to replace the whole window. Why? Because the whole window was now broken. Even though there's just one small little crack in the window. But oftentimes when we come to our sin life, we look at our sin life like that little small crack in the window. And we say to ourselves, it's not that big of a deal. It's not in my line of sight. It's kind of off to the corner. I can kind of ignore it. But the reality is this. What's true? The whole window is destroyed. The whole window is now compromised. The whole window now, if another rock hit it, what's going to happen? The likelihood it's going to what? Expand. And yet oftentimes in our sin life, do we not look at our sin like we look at the, the windshield of our car. But if we leave that little small crack in the windshield, heat happens, expansion happens, cold happens, and what happens? It begins to what? Splinter all over the front windshield. Till we get to a place we have to replace it. I wonder how often we look at our sin like that. We'll say, ah, it's just that. It's just a little sin over there. That little sin of partiality, it's not really going to affect my whole life. That little taste of lust over there won't affect my whole life. That little lie over there. And what James is saying to us is, no, if you break any of the law, you've broken all of the law. And so James is saying, let us none of us be partial because we're all transgressors of the royal law. We all, if we're honest with ourselves, we all do not love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we don't love neighbors as ourselves. We've broken all of the law, and there must be confession to that. Why? Because we believe what is true about God's word. So if there's any sin in our life this morning, let us be like James and say to ourselves, oh no, 
I've got to replace the whole window. I can't ignore that in my life. And listen, replacing a window is not cheap. I don't know why y'all in Tennessee don't do this, because in Florida, it's free. I mean, not really free, because it's part of your insurance. But in Florida, you get a, you live in Florida, you have a rocket, your windshield, you just take it down to the local glass guy, they replace it for free. Here, not so much. And with the new cars, I don't know why they do this, but it's got a chip in the window. Now, what, now who put a chip in a windshield? You know how much that little chip cost? It cost me over $800 to replace my front windshield. $800. You see, when we begin to eradicate sin from our life, it will be costly. But if we don't, it will be more costly. Because that next rock that hits, that next thing that hits my windshield, if I don't replace it, could shatter the windshield and it come right through and hit me in the head and I'm dead on contact. All because of a small little fracture in the windshield. So no coming out of the gates, you dealing with your sin is going to be very costly. I promise this, we'll see here in a moment what God does with the costliness of it. He goes on to say this in closing in this text. In verse 12 and 13, he's reminding us that we've all been transgressors of the law. And then he says this. So speak and also act as those that are being judged under the law of liberty. So James moves us again to action, not just words. So speak and act as what? Those that are under the law of liberty. What does that mean? It's the law of freedom. How did we receive the law of freedom? Through what Christ did for us. And so he's saying, be reminded that God acted in compassion because he's the ultimate through Christ Jesus that fulfills the royal law. And he's done that for you. So because he's done that for you, now you go and act and speak the way Christ did for you. And how did he do that for us? saying, let me remind you of this. Judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. But then he says this in closing. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He reminds us that judgment, that all of us are under judgment. But if you're a Christ follower this morning, not that you are under his judgment anymore, but now you're under his judgment that's full of mercy. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Then what is mercy? Mercy at its simplest is this. It is not getting what we do deserve. And what we do all deserve is eternal punishment in hell for all of our sins. No matter how big or small they are. And yet, in God's goodness, kindness, and mercy, sent Jesus on our behalf to do what we could not do so we would not get what we deserve. And now he tells us we ought to do the same 
for other people. So in closing this morning, two questions. Are we moved with compassion for needy people? And we pour out mercy on needy people. Let me pray for us this morning.